What's up gamers and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am Hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer. And you have just stepped into my captain's quarters, my weekly gaming update show where I talk about my favorite gaming news topic of the past week, discuss what games I've been playing, give tips on some of those games, as well as issue a weekly relevant gaming related decree. This week, it's all about the surprise announcement of two of my favorite games from the past. So let's talk about it and dive right into the episode in my news catch of the week. Gamers, this past week, Remedy Entertainments and Rockstar Games announced that they have entered a new publishing agreement in order to remake Max Payne and Max Payne 2, the fall of Max Payne, with, of course, Remedy developing and Rockstar publishing and financing the projects. And, of course, this is the exact same arrangement that was in place when the original games first released Max Payne in 2001 and Max Payne 2 in 2003. Now, Rockstar did develop and publish Max Payne 3 in 2012, as they did retain the rights to the franchise when the two companies split, but it just was not the same gaming experience. Now, real quick, guys, you know me if you listen to this show. I got to give you my backstory on my love of the Max Payne franchise, where I came from, how we got here. So Max Payne 1, the game obviously was very much highly touted as the next big thing with its bullet time feature and obviously if you don't know what bullet time is it took it straight from the matrix i mean straight from the matrix basically max Payne dives left right back forward and everything slows down in the game and you can shoot and aim in real time while the enemies and everything else around you is slowed down guys it was awesome you got to think back in 2001 that was electrifying to do that in a video game. We're talking 21 years ago. To put it into perspective, makes me feel extremely old as I say that out loud. Bottom line is though, I loved it. Me, my friends, gamers at the time, man, we ate it up. And it wasn't just the bullet time gameplay feature that, at least for me, drew me into the series. It was this noir, dark cop story that really just sounded interesting to me, especially 21 years ago as a 16-year-old kid. Man, I was working at GameStop, going to high school, obviously, and I had to check this game out. Reading Game Informer, the previews, it just sounded like something that was right up my alley. So, of course, I had to pick it up once it released, and I was not disappointed. It was so unique and just an awesome piece of storytelling, the way they did it. Because at the time, there was no cutscenes in this game. It was all done graphic novel style with panels of graphic novel pages, essentially, that were right there and you kind of flip through. And as you're seeing these scenes acted out in just the panels of a graphic novel, you have a monologue of Max talking over the scenes that were happening and different things that were going on within the context of the story. And it was awesome. It was extremely well done, especially to have been 21 years ago again, to reiterate that something of that level of quality was 
able to be done. But it doesn't surprise me when I look back at it because Remedy is just phenomenal and has always been known since then with my experience with them through Max Payne 1 and 2, Alan Wake, Control. They just have a certain level of excellence to them. The only hiccup I think they might have hit in the bump in the road, so to speak, would have been Quantum Break. And that's not to take anything away from that game, but it just wasn't on that same level of excellence as their other games. But Max Payne, the original, 2001, I could not get enough of it, guys. Loved it. So when the second game was announced and came out and was available roughly two years later in 2003, I could not wait to get my hands on it. It was supposed to be a, a noir love story. Again, sounded very interesting and, and just kind of different from what gaming was offering at the time from a story standpoint, from character development, and just all these different things. Well, let me just tell you, I got the game when it released. I loved it even more than the original. It was the rare occurrence that the sequel just completely, in my opinion, surpassed the original in every way. The gameplay mechanics were improved on bullet time. The story was even better than the original game story. And the controls, the graphics, all that good stuff. It was awesome that it retained the graphic novel style of telling the story as opposed to cutscenes. Yet again, I just, I loved it. It was just an awesome set of games. Unfortunately, at that point in time, Remedy went off to do its own thing. You know, unfortunately for Max Payne, I should say, because the fact that Remedy did break off and kind of go to do its own thing, we may not have had Control or Quantum Break, or for me, the biggest one of all, Alan Wake, if they had not done so. So, I'm glad that they did, but at the same time, the reason why I'm kind of like, ah, in regards to Max Payne specifically is because Rockstar, again, they did retain those rights to the license of the use of the name and any games created using that name. Well, the series would go dormant for almost a decade before they would release Max Payne 3 in 2012. <sighs> Guys, I was excited to get a Max Payne 3. I really was. But when I saw what Max looked like, this balding, uh, not overweight, but kind of just, I don't know, a beer belly kind of looking dude, gruff. I mean, I, I get that time and different things were supposed to have done this to him. <sighs> I don't know. I wasn't feeling the direction of the story, to be honest with you. And I will say this. Overall, compared to Max Payne 1 and 2, it was not what I wanted. Standing on its own as an individual game and experience, I did like it. The gameplay was good. It was tight. The graphics were amazing for the time on the 360. Rockstar, obviously, they too were very well known for their level of excellence in storytelling. Again, great story. Great graphics and gameplay and everything. It just was not Max Payne to me. And that's what I've been missing. And that's what I've been wanting since Max Payne 2, really. And now to know that we are getting remakes. And guys, to reiterate, it's a remake, not a remaster. A remake means a complete redo of the original experience. Remaster, you take that exact original experience and maybe polish up the graphics a little bit, tweak some controls here or there, some quality of life improvements, but that's about it for a remaster. A remake is a complete rebuild from the ground up. And on top of all this, just basic info and announcement, as part of that announcement, it was also said that, quote, this project will be in line with a typical AAA Remedy game production. Now, that tells me that this is not just going to be 
a new coat of paint slapped onto those original two games. It is going to be, in fact, a massive, complete overhaul from what those original games were. Because, you know, we've gotten in the past, especially in the recent past, <laughs> remakes or games that have the word remake attached to them. And they may not really be nothing more but a new, fresh paint coating. And I'm very glad that it seems like this is not the case for Max Payne and Max Payne 2. Now, Remedy is going to be using its Northlight game engine, which is the engine used to create control, which has me insanely excited. It's also the same engine they're using to create Alan Wake 2 for next-gen consoles only. But even outside of that, going back to control, if you've played control, the physics and just the environmental aspects and the uh, just the graphics and everything about that game was done amazing. That engine is an awesome engine. So to know that they're using that for the remakes of these two games, it just kind of reiterates and solidifies, yeah, it's a complete rebuild. Plus, it gets me so excited for what the gameplay opportunities, everything that they could potentially want to do in a Max Payne game, I feel like they're going to have those options available to them in using this brand new engine as far as max Payne's concerned now one of the cool things to me is that it was noted that remedy is actually they're the ones who came to rockstar about wanting to do the remakes and it's like hey look rockstar we love max Payne. there's a lot of fans out there that love those original games how about we get back together make amends and we work together to create brand new versions of those two classic games that we did together 20 years ago. What do you say? So of course, Rockstar, hey, look, we're fans of the franchise. Let's do this. So I am super stoked for that. Remedy CEO Taro Vertala had also said that, quote, the team is excited to bring the story, action, and atmosphere of the original Max Payne games back to players in new ways. Those Three words are what stand out to me more than anything in new ways. What does that mean? Well, gamers, you're going to have to wait until the end of the episode in my Captain's Decree segment where I go a little bit more detailed into what that may or may not mean. But first, let us go see what games I've been playing this past week and check out my Captain's Log. Gamers, the first game up is the game that has consumed my gaming life, my gaming soul since its release. None other than Horizon Forbidden West. If you've been listening to this show, you've been following my progress. And let me tell you, this past week, I dropped another nine hours into the game, bringing me to a total of 81 hours, 40% complete with the overall game, according to the end game progress tracker. So I'm pretty stoked about that. I, I get real jittery, giddy whenever I pass every 10 hours. I don't know. It's just something weird. It's always been that way for me. So to cross 80 hours and just the fact that it's 80 hours, guys, that is just a lot of time in any one game. And it doesn't even feel like 81 hours. That's the best part to me is sometimes you play a game and you put 80 a hundred hours into the game and it just feels you feel it i don't feel it in this game it feels like i've done half of that if not even less than half of it that's how much i'm into this game how much i've been loving it still loving it 
Now, when I last left you, as far as my progress, I was just about to start the next main story quest. And that's exactly what I did. So I started out, I really was just kind of defogging the map and hitting up all the map icons along the way as I was making my progress towards the quest marker. Eventually, I did make it to an amazing area known as Memorial Grove. And I don't want to go too much into spoilers here, uh, too many details to avoid those spoilers, that is. But man, it was a Tanakh stronghold that centuries ago used to be a museum. And let me just tell you that the main story content here, and what I mean by that is, yeah, there's some, it's not like earth shattering, oh my God, that did that really happen kind of stuff. But for a lore nerd like myself, that whenever I get into a game, the more lore, the deeper it goes, the more excited I get. That is what I mean by, man, like the main story of the overall world here, the progression, the amount of just knowledge that I felt that I gained from going through this museum and talking to a few of the characters within, oh, I walked away just absolutely loving it. There is a ton of text data logs, and if you know me, I love reading data logs in games. I don't, I don't know. I love reading in general, so maybe that's why it translates over into when I'm playing games and I get a text data log that I can read. The longer, the better. Man, there was plenty of them here, and they had some really good information in them too. But I did pick up my next objective for the main quest, and eventually I was on my way. And it was here that I got just a taste of those amazing looking jungle environments that are in this game. Now, obviously when the state of play happened last year and Sony was showing off the game, the entirety of that state of play was all in and around this jungle setting and environment. Well, I literally dipped my toe <laughs> in that jungle setting. And the only reason I dipped my toe in it, you know, unfortunately it was just kind of along the way. I kind of passed through the edge of that jungle area to get to where I was needing to go. But let me tell you, on that pass-through, man, it was gorgeous. The rivers and waterfalls, the greens of the trees and the grass. Guys, I loved it. Oh, it was, it was short-lived, but man, I loved it. And the beauty of it to me was the contrast of where I came from and through in those jungle areas to where I was going and have ultimately ended up, which is the snowy Northwestern mountains. So uh, it's kind of a contrast, you know, the sunny, bright, green, lush jungle type settings to uh, snowy mountains. But, but before I entered that snow, though, I did do a really cool quest that I thoroughly enjoyed. And there's this massive lake up in the north, almost northwest of the map, if you haven't gotten there yet. And it involved getting some eggs to help a cook in a nearby village prepare this specific special meal. And it may not sound like much, but let me just say I really enjoyed exploring that area. It was just a big crater lake type area and the machines that were around it and some of the different collectibles that you can find and loot and things like that. It was just it was a fun experience for me. And it may be a situation where it was just kind of a product of my personal experience and exploration that led me to some of the moments or highlights of my exploration of the area. And maybe you won't have the same experience, but that's what's great about the game. Another thing that's great about it, everybody can have individual moments like that that are completely separate from anybody else ever sharing in that moment. So 
Really enjoyed that quest. It was a fun one. I did take care of a few other odds and ends before eventually making my way north to the Tanakh outpost known as Stonecrest, which is where my next main quest objective was. Now, it was here that I did defeat an experienced level machine strike player. So if you remember last week, I was telling you that, you know, for a while I've been kind of intimidated with going back to machine strike and kind of just avoiding those players, even beginner players, because I, if you don't know, machine strike is kind of like this game's version of Orlog or Gwent, not in the sense that it's a card game like Gwent or, you know, the stones and whatnot with Orlog. It's its own thing. It's a board game, got all kinds of really cool pieces and whatnot. But the thing is, it's a game within a game. So it's Horizon Forbidden West's game within a game. And, you know, I really enjoy playing it, but you have to complete and defeat the opponent on three separate boards to officially fully defeat them. And I kept defeating people two out of three boards and just getting my butt kicked on that third board. So it intimidated me for a little while. Last week, I said, you know what? I'm not even worried about that. I don't care if it says intermediate level of difficulty or experience. I am doing this. And guess what? I did. I defeated the intermediate player. Well, this week, here at Stonecrest, there is an experienced level player. But I said, you know what? Just like last week, I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to try it. What's the worst that could happen? I lose. Okay. I'll come back later if so. Guys, I played and defeated this experience level machine strike player. The first two boards, no problem. Third board took me about four tries, but ultimately I was victorious. But I came away disappointed. How could I be disappointed, you ask? Well, the problem is, my assumption is that when you defeat a machine strike player, you get a rare or unique machine strike piece. Well, that was not the case here. I got a piece that I already had one of. So I went through all that, took the time to do all this, about a half hour or so to defeat this guy. And I just got a duplicate strike piece. To me, that was frustrating. You know, I could see if you sell duplicate strike pieces at vendors or whatnot, but I feel like these players, especially if it's an experience level player, you're going to give me a strike piece that presumably I got from defeating a intermediate experience level Uh, player come on like i just so i was disappointed i walked away with a second wide maw strike piece which is a good piece by the way but i digress now i did end my playtime this past week at the location of the bulwark which is another stronghold belonging to the sky clan and the sky clan it's one of the three tanakh clans in this region And you're basically having to go through and talk to and and gain the buy-in of each clan to help you in in the overall progress here in the story. But ultimately, it's here at the Bulwark that I did progress the main story to a point. But then I spent a lot of time checking in with its many vendors that were (laughs) spread throughout the multi-layered village. I changed the dye on Aloy's outfit, checked for some new face paint, bought and upgraded some new weapons, and ultimately prepped Aloy with all the gear that I wanted her to have access to as we neared the moment to leave the bulwark and continue the main quest, which is where I ended my time in the game after those nine hours this past week. Cannot wait to continue progressing in this amazing game. Now, 
I did have about a half hour one night to play through the next stage of the next game I'll talk about real briefly, and that is Kirby and the Forgotten Land. So if you listened last week, you'll know that I did play about a half hour last week, got through the first stage in the tutorial area in that 30-minute time. Well, this week, in about 30 minutes, I got through the second stage, and man, this stage was called The Tunnel. Guys, I continue to love exploring the level layout for secrets, like the minifigures that you can collect in this game. They're really cool. It's fun to figure out the environments, and there's little indicators that you can see that are like, ah, I know that there's something here. But then there's also cool stuff that you don't necessarily have jump out at you, which is one reason why I ended up missing the one challenge out of the list of challenges that were for this specific level. I never noticed that you could do it which is light a certain amount of wanted posters that were spread throughout the level on fire. Because the big thing on this level was basically really utilizing the fire ability that Kirby can swallow the fire or the bombs or whatever the case may be in this given scenario and use that to help progress. Because you needed to use the fire, kind of breathing it out like a dragon, if you will, in order to, to open up new areas or defeat enemies. And there were apparently wanted posters spread throughout that you could light on fire and that would add to a challenge well cool thing about this game that i like is that it tells you what the challenge is that you missed at the end of the level so that now i know and i can just go back and replay the level and burn away all the wanted posters now i will say ultimately it's going to be a very slow crawl as far as my progress it goes in this game but i am loving it nonetheless it's a lot of fun so that's what games i played this past week now out of that playtime, let's go see what my highlight of the week was. Gamers, as much fun as I had in Kirby in that 30-minute short time this week, it was undoubtedly Horizon Forbidden West that has my highlight of the week. And what it really was, maybe something that you won't expect. So for me, it was finally... Finally, completing the job that I created in order to help me locate the resources needed to upgrade my current outfit to the next level. So if you remember a few weeks ago in Captain's Quarters, I had mentioned, hey, look, don't sleep on that create job function because it's such an amazing option to say, hey, in order to upgrade this, you need these resources. Well, most games don't tell you where to get those resources, or they're very well hidden how to get those resources. Horizon? Nah. They actually allow you a create a job function. And in that creation, it shows you map markers to the nearest possible locations you can get these items needed to upgrade whatever it is, whether it's a weapon or an outfit in this case. So guys, I was so excited to finally upgrade the current armor or outfit that Aloy was wearing. You know, in and of itself, it wasn't really some kind of epic mission, but what I loved about it was this. So I needed shield caster parts from a Sunwing machine, an elemental claw strider sack webbing from an elemental claw strider. So I started out with the sun wings first and, you know, sun wings, obviously they're aerial enemies. So you can either do vertical shock traps or you can do you know, rope casters to try to pin them to the ground. And if you played horizon, you know what I'm talking about with those tools. 
Well, bottom line is there was an area that the icon and the job directed me towards where I could get some sun wings. And it was just the whole process about it. It wasn't just like the act of fighting them or taking them down, but it was also the detective work that I felt that I had to do in a way to figure out exactly the best way to ensure that I was getting the exact parts that I needed. So what you do is you have to go into your notebook in the pause screen and it has a listing and kind of a bestiary of all the machines and machine types and variations of the machines right there for you. And you can actually scroll through and it'll show you and pinpoint and highlight the specific pieces that you can tear off of these machines. And it'll tell you whether it's used for customization or upgrading weapons and armor or, hey, you have to get this only by defeating the enemy without destroying it. You can't, if you defeat the enemy, awesome, but make sure not to destroy this item during the fight. Or you have to tear this off of the enemy by using tearing weapons. So I love that level of detail. So I did that for the Sunwing, and I also did that for the Elemental Claw Strider. My luck, I had acid claw striders that were nearest to my location. So they were a lot of fun trying to pinpoint their path of walking around in circles in a certain area and deciding which one I was taking out first. I ended up actually controlling one of them and taking out the other two by just going ham on them with that claw strider. And that was a lot of fun as well. So it's all these little pieces that just kind of added up to a just awesome moment. And this was purely, purely just to get these resources needed to upgrade my current outfit that I wanted Aloy to have a a little bit better defensive options and uh, maybe another coil slot or uh, more increased damage when I'm doing a silent strike, whatever the case may be. It was just a lot of fun getting these pieces together, finding out how to best ensure I get those pieces instead of, you know, just going into the Sunwing area, destroying both Sunwings and then being like, wait a minute, I didn't get the piece I needed. Why? Nope. Always looking at checking that notebook, guys. I can't reiterate that enough. Always, always check before you're going to go do something specific like that. And you're trying to get specific resource pieces. But that was my highlight of the week. Now let's go open up my buried treasure gaming chest and find out what gaming tips I have for you in Horizon Forbidden West. Gamers, earlier in the episode, I talked a little bit about my experience with Machine Strike and beginner and intermediate and experienced level players. Well, one thing I wanted to do is to give you guys some tips on how to better approach these machine strike players. So the first thing I'm going to tell you to do when you first boot up a machine strike game is look at the opponent's pieces, compare them to yours. If you have those same pieces and you don't know what the specifics are of a piece, it's stats, whether it be the amount of damage that it takes when it attacks a fellow enemy or how many moves it has on each turn or what its different special ability is because not every strike piece has a special ability. So if you want to look at those things, I would highly recommend doing so and paying attention to that before you choose your pieces. So look at the opponent's pieces. Next up, you're always going to want to look at the tiles that are in play for this game and this board. Each board has a different selection of tiles. Now, if you're wanting to know which strike pieces or which tiles the opposing player is using, 
all you got to do on that screen, it's right there on the right-hand side of the screen, kind of a column, if you will, with the strike pieces above, and then right below those are the different tiles that'll be being used on a specific board. So look at those tiles and play. And you want to do that because your strike pieces, certain ones do certain things or don't do certain things depending on the tile piece that it's on. So if you look at a board and you see that you have all rock or high tile pieces, you're not going to want to use strike pieces that are only good for you and the forest or grassland tile pieces. So it's just basics like that that you want to look for. Ultimately, it's not always about the quantity of strike pieces, nor is it always about the health level of a specific given piece. So what I mean is you don't want to go into a a board and say, oh, well, they only pick two strike pieces. So if I pick five automatically, hey, strengthen numbers, right? No, no, do not let that sway your judgment. Those two strike pieces they could be worth quite a few valor points a piece, especially if there's only two pieces in play. Because typically, you have to have 10 valor points in play among the strike pieces you're using to even play. So if you only got two strike pieces, more than likely they're five valor points a piece. Or you could have any variation, seven and three, eight and two. You get the idea. But the point is, That one really powerful Valor piece, strike piece, it's going to take a couple moves to take down if you're still earlier in the game and have lower strike pieces like I have. So pay attention to that. It's not always about having more strike pieces, but having the right strike pieces. And that's where looking at the tiles in play come into play. Now, once you select your pieces, I personally would suggest placing them on tiles where they have stat boosts first And then just kind of sit back and wait and see how your opponent moves. And then, based on how they're moving and where you think you might be wanting to defend or not or attack, that's where you kind of figure out your strategy. Now, always keep an eye on how your piece's stats change, whether it's due to the type of tile that you're on or what other pieces of yours are nearby. It could dictate how you move on your turn. And that is the risk and reward, though. Do you take your piece away from another piece of yours and lower its defense? But you're doing that in order to set up an offensive strike. Or do you try and lure your opponent into a trap and just ambush them with multiple strike pieces of yours? All these things go into play. So keep that in mind as well. Your strike pieces accentuate each other. They will make each other stronger. So keep an eye on those stats. Now, You can win in two different ways of machine strike. Either eliminate all pieces on play of the opponent or reach seven valor points, whichever comes first. And each strike piece that you take off the board of your opponent, whatever its equivalent valor point value is, you add that up till the first person gets to seven. So what I would recommend focusing on from the beginning is seeing which opponent's piece is the most highest valor point value and then you just focus on trying to figure out the strategy of getting to it and trying to corner it or ambush it and take it out in the most methodical way and quickest way usually possible because the thing is you can't get too close or else those higher valued valor point strike pieces a lot of times can do double moves and take out it happened to me earlier two of your strike pieces at once so you want to be careful 
but you want to take out those big guys first because what is the point of two longhorn strike pieces that are worth one valor point a piece if you take them out and you only get two valor points but they come after two of your higher end valor point strike pieces and they take you out and you get five valor points taken from you in one fell swoop so it's just these things that you really want to pay attention to from the beginning now depending on the amount of health and strike pieces that you and your opponent have in play this should lead to more victories than not these tips you are going to have losses along the way i have but that's just part of it it's trial and error and i do feel that some of these tips they're really going to help you guys with strategizing and avoiding defeat at least i hope so now let's go check out this week's captain's decree Gamers, as mentioned earlier in the episode, we are here at the Captain's Decree where I am going back to Max Payne and the announcement and the Remedy CEO, Taro Vertala's quote of, the team is excited to bring the story, action, and atmosphere of the original Max Payne games back to players, here's the clincher, in new ways. So my decree is really more of a question. What does that mean? What does that mean, Max Payne in new ways? So ultimately, the first thing that I have to ask, will bullet time return? Guys, I got to think so. I feel like bullet time has got to be a lock because it's one of the most notoriable things of the entire series of Max Payne is bullet time. That's partly what it's known for. So how can we not have bullet time? But I have seen stranger things happen. I get that it's way 20 years, 21 years, as we reiterated earlier, in the future, since the originals, and, you know, gaming's evolved. But my thing is this, we could evolve bullet time. It doesn't have to be as basic of a gameplay function as it was back in 2001 and 2003, even in 2012. Rockstar didn't fully, in my opinion, do much extra with bullet time. So if anybody can figure out ways creatively to maximize bullet time, I would definitely have my faith in Remedy. Now, painkillers. Painkillers are huge, a big deal in Max Pain. That's how you heal. And there's also a second meaning to it. Max is dealing with a lot of ish in his life in these games. So painkillers, there's just a lot going on there. Are they going to return? What form are they going to return in? (sighs) The next one is a big one for me. Graphic novel monologues instead of traditional cutscenes. The original games, like I said, I loved that style, that film noir style, graphic novel paintings to progress the story with Max's monologue over uh, just It was beautiful. Will that return? Is that something that Rockstar and Remedy are looking to keep? Now, Rockstar did not in Max Payne 3. So my question, guys, you're remaking the original and the second. I feel like you got to keep them because Max Payne 3 was something new and different and on its own. So it didn't necessarily have that to go back to. Sure, you could pay homage to the first two and having that style in Max Payne 3. But I really think Rockstar wanted to go very different for Max Payne 3 from 1 and 2. I respect it. But I don't think that that's what you want to do with these remakes. I feel like you got to still keep the uniqueness of what made those two games so great. The other big thing for me is the same voice actor who played Max Payne in those original games going to return? Because personally, when I hear Max Payne or see Max Payne, I hear that voice. I thought it was a classic, perfect choice 
for that character, especially when reciting, again, the monologues. I'll go back to them. Over those graphic novel style layouts, it was awesome. It was extremely well done. I would love if that same actor returned for the voice of Max Payne. Now, final question I had, are we going to get the exact same story and the same origins of who Max Payne is and why he is the way that he is at the beginning of the game when we find him in the original? Are we getting those same story beats? Are we getting his origins in the same way that they were given to us in the original games? I hope so. I very much understand that it's he's very similar to the Punisher. Marvel's the Punisher in that sense as far as his origin. At least I've always felt like he was. So I, I could get it if they wanted to change it up a little bit, but at the same time, eh, let's let's pay homage. Let's keep it going. We're remaking. We're not just completely uh, throwing away what was there before and doing something brand new. At least, I don't think so. But my question, my concern, how minute it may be, is those three words, in new ways. So I'm all about doing it new. I don't want just, like I said earlier, a fresh coat of paint. Yeah, let's do this. Let's update this. Quality of life, all these different things. Let's make it a little bit longer. Now, I'm not saying 30 hours for Max Payne, but you know, maybe a 15-hour Max Payne as opposed to a 10-hour Max Payne. That, I think, would be great. So I'm just very much waiting on pins and needles to see exactly what they do with this. Obviously, we just got the announcement that this thing even existed. So it's going to be a while before we see any of these details. But rest assured, gamers... I am absolutely extremely excited to return to Max Payne. That'll do it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch networks. Reach out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as find me on social media on Instagram at lostatseagaming, as well as on Twitter at lostatseagamin, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing.